Good morning, good morning. We've got a lot to do, and I'm excited about all the things that we're going to cover today. So I've already told you that the first thing I want to do is start with giving you a little bit more contextual setting. We did a timeline before, and I don't have mine right before me, but in your mind, if you, I, I have nowhere to write it is the problem, uh, because my board is going to be very full today, <laughs> both boards. I want you to, in your mind, envision a timeline. And on that timeline, you're going to place Solomon upon the, on the timeline because that's who we are covering at this point, right, in history. It's the, the, the beginning of the uh, kingdom of Solomon and his reign. Uh, before Solomon, who came? Who was king before Solomon? David was. Now, when David came in as king... What was the condition or the circumstance in which he came to secure that position as king? What was historically going on? There was, there was actually a war going on with Philistines. It was just a beginning thing, okay? There was all kinds of internal turmoil. Now, you know, we, we look at Solomon and we... And we get to a place where we see some of these conclusion statements like, and God placed him firmly upon his throne, or he established him securely on his throne or in his kingdom. And it almost sounds like everything is just wonderful, right, in your mind. And yet, is that a truth, a full truth? No. What is that conclusion statement supposed to do for us pertaining to the message that God has for us? There you go, Carrie. You nailed it. That God has a plan, and he will bring it to pass. And what we know from what was said before through David was that who would be on the, front, the throne after David? Solomon. Solomon. So we saw this even in chapter 1 and 2 then. A, a problem developed as far as turmoil within the nation because what was going on in chapter 1 of 1 Kings? There was a coup by one of the sons of who? David. So now you've got a double issue going on. Not only do you have uh, a, an aggressor coming against the throne to try to seize what was not rightfully his, but you also have a son who's coming against his father, which has got to be a very hurtful thing and a very uh, powerful emotional turmoil that was going on even for David as well. So we, we see that then that before Solomon was David, David's establishing of his kingdom was also a, a very um, volatile kind of historical time frame for him. How long, in general, how long did it take David to secure that throne? Was this something that happened within days or weeks or... It took him years to finally secure that throne. Who was on the throne before David? Saul. Saul. Tell me what the dynamics were between David and Saul. Okay, say it again. It really kind of was a love-hate. It, it started somewhat friendly, did it not? What was David, who, who was David in the life of Saul to begin with? David and Goliath. That's right. Good. What was his name? <laughs> there you go. 
Right. So David's first introduction to Saul was when, as a young shepherd boy, he was brought in to King Solomon to play the harp in order to soothe Solomon's demons, basically. The demons that were, were uh, wreaking havoc on him emotionally and, and were giving him such unrest and such unpeace. He, had to, he felt that he needed the peace of God, and so he brought David in to play this lovely music to give him a, a sense of calm, right? And so that began the relationship, and in there then David became friends with, with King Saul's son, Jonathan, which we know, for those of us who have done the study of covenant, that David actually ends up in a personal covenant with the son of Saul, Jonathan. Um, and so we have David engaging with Saul, but along the way, something happens between Saul and David, and I think the catalyst for a lot of what was going on there pertained to a day when an anointing took place by the prophet Samuel. What, what did he do? What, who was anointed and to be, for what purpose? David was anointed to be the, the next king, right? And with, concerning Saul, what had Saul done that, re, that ended up with another king being anointed to replace him. Okay, he was, he, was, he was basically violating covenant with God and worshiping God in a manner which was not acceptable. God was saying, because God had a law, right? What came before Saul in history? The judges, and before the judges was Moses, and what was given to Moses? The Ten Commandments, the law, the, and the, the outline of, and the procedures for the tabernacle and how to approach God, how to worship God. So in, in this historical background so far, what we know then is that we have, we have God who has, has given his people, Israel, a law gave them a temple, and gave them a process and a procedure that was acceptable. God is the one who was to determine how and when and where man would approach him, correct? That there was, that there was a, a way to approach God which is, was acceptable, and there was a way not to approach God, correct? And so with this first king of Israel, Saul, Saul violated those uh, procedures and those commandments that God had given. And so God then has uh, Samuel anoint David to replace Saul. And, and there's actually a statement in there, if I remember correctly, where it says that God removed um, his spirit from Saul. And when that happens, that spirit and that anointing, and that blessing and that endorsement of God, his power and his presence being with Saul, that's when Saul started going downhill and emotionally, and then all this turmoil began to take place. David comes on the scene. They have forged a somewhat tenuous relationship in the beginning, but then it begins to crumble because as time goes on, Saul is aware that David is the one that has been uh, chosen by God to replace him. And so there's this rivalry. So now, so now we have a little bit of background in history about where we've come from and where we are kind of in this storyline of, the kingdom of, of Israel itself was always a, in a struggle, a power struggle, in a balance between 
obeying God and keeping those principles and those commandments that God wanted for his nation, what was the reason God even created the nation of Israel? What, what was its design purpose? Okay, to be a blessing, to be a light, right? God's purpose with, the, with his people had a spiritual mission to it on earth. And, you know, although they were certainly a nation as America is a nation or as any other nation is a nation, but their design and their birthing, their very existence was done through supernatural wonders and works of God for the purpose that Israel would be the tool that God would use to proclaim who he is to the world, right? And that people would see a distinguished people, a blessed people in the world. And when that nation began to fail God in that, what was the problem? What was, what was going to happen with Israel? Had they been told that there was going to be consequences if they did not obey God? Yes. So, Yes. That's right. Okay, so there's actually, let me see if I can find that one real quick before I go into this next step. Because I do think that also, um, let's see if I can find. I have so many sheets of paper that I'm not sure. Hold on a second. I'm going to find it because the passage on that, what God said would happen when Israel had a king. Now, this is on day four of your homework this week, correct? You all looked at this. It's in 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 17. Um, do you remember what, what was said about what would happen? <laughs> when you get a king that you're clamoring for, he is going to, and then he, they go through and they list all the things that will happen if you set yourself up with that kind of a dynasty before you, right? Now, what was God's original desire in that then? Who did he want to have as king over his people? Himself. himself. There's another passage, and I don't have it right here yet either. I'm hoping I will find it in a bit. Let's see. Hold on. Yes, and I was looking for that particular. It's in, is it in? Uh, no, it's not in Deuteronomy. There's a ver there's actually a verse that says they have not. Re it's in First Samuel somewhere, right? Where he says they've not rejected you, and he's speaking to the prophet. He says, but they're rejecting me as their king, right? And in the end, he says, go ahead and give them what they want. So God, in other words, what do you see when God says that to a nation? He says, I want to be your king. You're insisting on having another king, but I'm going to allow it. So what does that tell you about God's relationship with his people? He allows choice. It's called free will. And within that free will choice then also comes the, the, the reality then that there are consequences or, and or blessings that might come in that choice uh, relationship that you have with God, that, that freedom, that free will of choice. Now, how does that move forward then into the New Testament? Do you think God has changed his way that he handles man? 
Do you see that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant even, although we come into relationship with God in salvation, which is slightly different from the, the national covenant we're talking about with Israel as a nation, but the principle is the same. The principle that, that is brought forward into the New Covenant, which is a secure blessing, which is an assurance of salvation, and yet within the assurance of your, of your salvation, there are also choices to be made, right, with, with your relationship with God. And when you choose to obey God and honor God, what does God do for us? It's a blessing. Does that sound familiar? So in Deuteronomy, when God set before Israel the blessings and the cursings, and he says, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And if you don't obey me, then I will bring these disasters upon you. And he lists all these possibilities of ways that God will bring these disasters. Now, the disasters in the New Testament, we, we studied about this in the, in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it teaches the same principle, but it talks about a father and how a father's son relationship is, right? And a father, what does a father do for his son if his son gets out of line? He disciplines him. So there's not blessings and cursings, but blessings and discipline, right? So you can see that there are subtleties to the way that we need to make sure that we make our translation from old to new. We have to understand that in the old, what, that we're looking at here, that we're looking at principles that we're drawing out of it, but then there are some real concrete things about Israel that we need to make sure that we discern separately, and that is the covenant with Israel was a national covenant. It was not a covenant for salvation. It was a covenant for blessings and or cursings, right? Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. However, there was a covenant for salvation for the Old Testament people, correct? But it was not the covenant of the law. What was it? It was a covenant of faith. And that covenant of faith we call what kind of a covenant? What's the, who gave that? Who did God give that covenant to first? Abraham. I mean, as far as covenants and the recorded hour, we know that there was salvation from the beginning opportunity with Adam and Eve all the way through. But God established another covenant, a distinctive way for man to understand, to approach God and enter into relationship with God. And the, the determining factor of whether or not you entered into a covenant called the Abrahamic covenant as an Old Testament person, what was the factor for entering in? What must you do? Believe God. That's it. Pure, it's a pure grace, salvation by grace covenant in the old as it is in the new. But when we are looking at the kingdom of, of Solomon, which is where we're at now in history, what I want you to remember is we're not looking at a salvation covenant. Although there are people within the nation that are under that covenant of salvation. They've entered into, the, like David did, entered into that covenant with, uh, in relationship with God, where he, where he had a heart after God, right? He had a heart like, like God himself. In, and we saw a demonstration of it with David, where we saw him acting with mercy and compassion, and we saw him um, showing repentance when he would sin and a turning away from that, and a real, a real godly kind of sorrow, Right? Um, so I'm making a few of those points now. Before I enter in, I want to lay a little bit more now of context. Besides just the, the, where we are right now, which is with Solomon, and, at the, and the establishing of that kingdom, right at the very beginning of that kingdom, 
But, um, and we saw the progression of God bringing people on the land, giving them a law, saying, obey and be blessed, disobey, and there will be consequences. You have that freedom of choosing what you're going to get. <laughs> but I'm telling you, if you don't do it God's way, because this, the design for this nation is that it would be a light to the world, that it will declare to all the peoples of the earth who I am and what relationship with me is like. How a, what a blessing it can be, but that I am also a righteous God who will not tolerate the sinfulness and the willfulness of man, right? I, will, I, I have a standard of your ability to approach before me. Even, remember when we did Leviticus, even down to the point of if you, if you enter before the, the Lord in a wrong way, or if you touch or try to carry or bring the wrong kind of fire before the Lord. Remember how there were people who died because they brought... Um, strange fire before the Lord. Okay, so there's a way to approach God that he has set down. These are laws. So by the time you get to, to Solomon, do the people know about these laws and how to approach God? Do they understand what God said about where they can approach God? Yes. What, what do you think might be the reason that God is so specific about the place that they're, that's basically approved by God for them to approach him. Why, why, why must he protect that so carefully and be so specific about you come to me here, you come to me in this way, you come to me at these times, and this is how you come and what you bring? Why is he so careful to give that instruction? Mm-hmm. Right. Because okay, so now expound on that. Yeah, and that's all exactly correct. That God had a certain uh, um, pathway to approach Him. Right now. When it came to, for instance, because we looked at the tabernacle this week, we looked at the altar that was in two different locations and how that happened, a little bit about how that happened. I'm not still totally clear on that, but it, it appears that not all the details are given to us, but just simply the fact that this is what had happened is told to us. Um, but why would God insist on a... a very defined uh, way of approaching God and place to approach God. What does that tell you? Okay, number one, obedience is, a, is a definitely a demonstration of true love. If you say that you love God, but you won't obey what he's laid down as his law, then are you really loving him? No, Jesus says so in the new. What does Jesus say about that? He who loves me keeps my commandments. Okay. This, I know this is simplistic, but God is saying, okay, folks, I am in charge here. You do not. I make the rules. You do not. Also, I mentioned in the temple and in the Old Testament referred to Jesus. Thank you. You hit it. Now she got it. I was, that's what I was trying and waiting for. Perfect, Diane. You did a beautiful job. 
One of the most important things for you and I to remember, because sometimes I think when people enter into the Old Testament and they start looking at the way God has such rigid laws and rigid rules about how you and when and where you can approach God, what they, what they fail to recall or to understand is why God keeps the rigidness there. What is the picture in that particular layout of that altar and the way to approach God? Symbolically, you and I have looked at this in our various studies throughout uh, the time we've been together. And for those who haven't been here with us, you know, hopefully you've had some experience with this. But the very temple itself and each of the steps in the process of taking a sacrifice before the Lord are pictures of the Messiah that would come and fulfill each of those qualities, right? And also singling out one place to approach God, what does that tell us then? How does that translate into the New Testament for how we are to approach God? There's only one way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through Jesus Christ, through his Son, Jesus Christ. There, you cannot enter before the presence of God, who is your creator, who is the founder of this world. You cannot enter before him, before Muhammad, before Hare Krishna, before you know, any other system of worship. If it is not Jesus Christ and if it is not God's word, that is the, the truth factor, that through that truth, if it's not his commandments and through that truth, then you do not enter into the presence of God. So what he did is he designed a, a plan where he said, this is going to be my temple. This is, uh, and he gave them the tabernacle. And at that time, it was a traveling tabernacle. But so when God said, okay, you will worship me the place that I determine and in the way that I determine, but yet the tabernacle was moving, 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 then how does that say to them where? What is the where? There you go. You're getting close. That's exactly what you're right on. You're, you're right in there. In other words, it's, do you remember what would happen with Israel as they would travel through the wilderness? How would they know when to stop and start? The, the, cloud, the cloud of mist and the pillar of fire by, at night, right? And any time that, that, uh, that presence of God would stop, then they knew to stop and make camp. And anywhere that that light that guided them or that mist that guided them stopped, that was the place that God had determined. So any place that that tabernacle got pitched, that was the place. And he said, however, to them that one day when they come into the land, what would he give to them? A permanent place. He says, and you shall worship, according to Deuteronomy, and it's a key repeated phrase, you have to go and look for it, but it's awesome. You shall worship in the place which I shall show you. You shall worship in the place which I determine, right? And you shall only approach me in that place which I shall show you. And then he gives them a contrast to that, but you shall not do what? Worship where? On every hill and upon every high place in all these other places. So these were laws that God had already established. So here we are now down the line in history with Solomon. This is all information he knows. 
He's been taught. And they literally still have the physical tabernacle and even the altar, although they had separated them at this point. But they had both of those, okay? So now what I want to do is go back and show you just a little bit more on context because I think you're going to find this helpful in the rest of our observations that we do here. Okay, I've got to find my notes. They are many. <laughs> okay, I found a really good writing um, out of, it's called the New Bible Commentary, and it's on First and Second Kings, and there are some points, and I, this, on this part of the home, uh, our discussion, I'm just going to give you facts that I've gleaned out of this particular commentary, and you can go and look it up for yourself later, and or you can just look for other commentaries that will give you additional insight on this, but this was really interesting. First and Second Kings, did you know that First and Second Kings originally was written as a four-book series? It included 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings all together. Does anybody know um, how those four books were put together in the Septuagint? Has anybody heard of that? I mean, it was something that was new to me when I read this. This was interesting. It says the title of, of these four books in the Septuagint writings, which were written way back when, right? They were, they were written in the... Uh, for in the Greek language, am I correct on that? The Greek, Koine. the Koine Greek, mm -hmm. and um, it was earlier writings, earlier records that we had even before where we are now in history. Okay, much much before. But it, when they had the Septuagint writings, and that was their 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 standard form of the records of history that we are now looking at as First Kings, Second Kings, and so forth. Those four books were together and they had a t one title over the four of them and it was called the four books of kingdoms or the four books of reigns isn't that interesting which shows you that initially when they were written they were intended to be one set one book one reading without the breaks without the first and second of either of them so first and second samuel first and second kings were written as one book and they were considered one record isn't that interesting? Now can you see why it's so important for us to have to go back to First and Second Samuel all the time? Because in it is the context for where we're at here in First Kings. So let's write context here. Uh, first and second. Oh, I'm getting really bad feedback. I can't, I don't know what to do about that. First and Second Kings, sorry. that. Okay, First and Kings, oh, okay. was a four-book set, and it was titled The Four Books of Reigns or Kingdoms. Okay, so that was the first, was first and second kings originally was a part of that. Okay, so that's my first point I want you to know about context on this, because do you think that helps you a little bit in considering how you might want to look at first kings? For me, it just kind of made, to me, it, it, it set in my mind the, the importance, really, of how you really can't look at first kings isolated from the rest of those 
three books, that they have to be looked in totality. So to really do a thorough observation of First Kings or Second Kings, you have to go back and do First and Second Samuel with it, okay? Because they were intended to be read all together. Now, what about the date of the writing on this? Let's look at the date. Now, we, we have looked at this purely from the perspective of that timeline that I started out with on, on this with you, where we looked at who, who came before and, who, and what would kind of come after with Solomon. We, we at least looked at all those kings that led up and some of those major markers, like the giving of the law, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the giving of the law, the judges which came first before the kings, and then the beginning with Saul. King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And so we see that um, linear uh, flow of thought that where we're at right now in 1 Kings chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, right? But beyond that then, we also want to look at the date of the writing. Now, this is something that I learned when um, we were doing a study in the book of Genesis where we saw in Genesis chapter 6, there was a teaching on the, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men anyone whom they chose. And one of the things that was profound to me was that, wow, that writing of Genesis, of Genesis chapter 6 about the events that happened that caused God to bring a flood upon the earth, that was written in the days of Moses by Moses because Moses wrote the Septuagint. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the law. Moses wrote. So the creation event was revealed to Moses in, in time in history. That's pretty interesting, right? Because that moves you way forward. And who is Moses? Well, he was the man that was about to take Israel into the land that God had promised to them. And so when he was writing that historical record, he was, his purpose was to teach Israel who is man and who, who is God, first, first and foremost? So he is their creator, because it starts in Genesis 1, shows them as the creator, what he created now. And then he, and then he also wanted them to know who they were, that they were a creative people that God had birthed, right, through, through a promise first to Abraham and then through the seed eventually that came. And so by the time they get up to Moses, then Moses is now recording about these, who God is, who the people are, and how they got to where they are right now. But he has to go back in history, and he's giving that, that, that line. And so one of the things that's really interesting is in Deuteronomy 7, he records a little passage that you and I have even looked at this week where it says, and when you enter into the land... Do not marry the, the, do not let your sons marry their daughters. Do not let your daughters marry their sons. Why? Because they were what? That's right. Because through marriage, through that, that union of the husband and wife, the husband or the wife will be drawn away from God to follow the other gods of the land. Because if they, marry a person who is worshiping a foreign god, a pagan god, they are going to pollute themselves in their mind. Because of their, 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 their fleshly love for a human person, they're going to have a tendency to want to please that person and to want to join that person even in activities of that person's life. And therefore, they would begin to follow. And what would result in that would be the people 
would, or, would basically begin to fall away from God. And then what would God have to do if that happens to Israel once they get on their land? He would have to remove them off the land. And so when he recorded the Genesis 6 account, he showed a demonstration of God doing that in a worldwide manner where he didn't just wipe a nation off of a land that had been promised to them, but what had God done? He wiped all men off the face of the earth with the exception of those who were following him, who were saved in the ark. What an amazing insight that is when you take the context of Genesis 1 and consider that it was written in the days of Moses for the purpose of showing and demonstrating to them why when they go on the land, they can't do whatever they want and marry whomever they want. That they are to remain within the household of faith of those who love Yahweh and follow him and believe on the seed that he has promised that is coming for them, right? And, and, in, do, and in doing that, then putting yourself into that context, you get a better understanding of how to interpret chapter 6 of Genesis as well. So here we are. We've taken just a linear line on a timeline, and we've placed Saul and David and Samuel in their order with all the other things that have happened previously. We've considered all of that, but that's where we've stopped. Is that the rest of the story? No, because when was this book written? Was it written when, when, uh, Samuel, when um, Solomon was placed on the throne? No. So what do you think might be the way that you, might, you could discern as to when this was written? When these records of these four books were written? After what? Oh, very good, Sarah. Okay. So Sarah says it, it would take you all the way to the time of the exile. Now, why do you know that? Because the logic is probably the last recorded event is the closest point to when the book was, was written and finished. Correct? So what you're going to do then for us is, I want you to do this. Look at 2 Kings 25, and somebody read verse 27 to 30. Okay, I want you to read 27 to 30. Can you read that out loud for us? Right, do you have it there? Second right. Kings 25, 27 to 30. Regularly, all the 
Okay, wow, that's very interesting. So, so the last record is about Jehoiakim, and, and he makes a note that um, in the 37th year of the exile to Babylon, that certain events began to take place for King Jehoiakim. He, he, make, he backs up and says this what, is what began to happen for him. The king of Babylon became favorable towards Jehoiakim for whatever reason. And I, we haven't studied all that, so I don't, it, it's not important to get a lot of details. Just trying to show you the timing that's going to help us kind of box this in a little bit. It's not going to give us the date. It is going to give us a general time point of reference for us to say, well, this is about when this all was recorded. We know that where, where we're at in history on this is we're at the we're at, at least at this point midway through the Babylonian captivity of Israel because he says it's in the 37th year. How long did Babylon stay in their captivity in Babylon? 70 years. Now, for those of you who don't know that, we've studied that in previous lessons. Um, let me see. Did I write that down? I didn't, but it's, it's, oh yes, Jeremiah, you can look a verse up, give yourself a verse, Jeremiah 25, 11 tells you that they were to go into their captivity for 70 years, it tells you that, and for the, for those who have ever studied Daniel, you know the history on that, 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 that captivity began with Dan, uh, Daniel and his cohorts, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right, at about 605 B.C., and that it took three sieges to get Jerusalem completely fallen. And it was from that point there, at the end of that fall, which was in 586, from that point forward, they spent 70 years then in their captivity. And that after that, they would be released. So that just kind of gives you a ballpark. You've got a few years to look at. We know when the captivity was, 605 to 586. We know they're in the middle of that year. He says it's the 37th year of their Babylonian exile. So you can count forward from 586, 37 years approximately. And basically, you're saying, okay, so roughly halfway through Babylon is when he makes this record about something that happened to Jehoiakim. However, he also makes a statement that he remained in the favor of the king of Babylon, and he remained in the king's presence. How long? All the days of his life. Now, how long that was, I, we would have to do other research and other uh, findings. But at least it kind of tells us sometime... In those 70 years, and it was closer to the, to the midpoint and to the end, that this writing occurred. Now, what's interesting, it could um, not have been earlier than the release of King Jehoiakim that this was written. That's, that's one point that's made by this particular uh, uh, writing, uh, commentary, uh, which would have been in, that he says 561 B.C., uh, and is thought to be no later than the Jews first uh, returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. So that gives you a ballpark window. And what did we do to, to try to begin to narrow that down? We went to the last writing, the last record of events that are in the record of 2 Kings. So you go to 2 Kings, we get to the end, we see a time re reference given to us, and it gives us a ballpark. Isn't that wonderful that the internal writings itself can give you a pretty good idea? Now, uh, there's another issue that does come up, and he speaks of it in his article, of 
trying to pinpoint exact dating on things, it gets real complicated. As a matter of fact, to the point that he doesn't even, won't discuss it. He gives you like five or six resource books you can go to to try to research more information on that, but he won't even touch it. He just says it, it's, it's very complicated and it has to do with the different kinds of calendars. It has to do with the different kind of mindsets of who's writing and saying what, if they're, if they're Hebrew in their thinking or whether they're uh, um, uh, Gentile in their thinking, in which king, in which kingdom. And are they talking about ascension years? Or are they talking about the ruling years? It's like Solomon. He was, he was anointed king, but he didn't establish his king and kingdom until after David died. But, so they were co-regents for a period of time. And sometimes they'll just say, and he was on the throne, blah, blah, blah. But so that makes you think, oh, he was king, so it has to be this date. No, maybe he co-regent with his dad for 20 years, some of these kings. So you don't know, and, and there's so many variables in it that it makes it difficult. But what we do have is additional writings, and this is something else that he, he talks about. Let's go into the authorship part of some of this context setting. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit, because this was another point I thought was really insightful. Um, authorship is unnamed, correct? So far, we don't really know who the author is, and as far as all of the commentaries are concerned, there's really n not a specific name given. There never is. It's kind of like that book of Hebrews. We're, we're uncertain. However, there are some clues about who the guy probably was. The fact that he has access to dates, kings, years of reigns, and some of these events that are going on, and the decrees and so forth that are actually being stated and recorded by him, having access to that information tells you what about him? Yeah, that he was probably a scribe or a priest because they are the ones who would have access to what? The scrolls and the writings, okay? So scribes and priests have access to that. He's probably, who else might he bite? Another quality of him might be. If he's a scribe, what does that tell you about him? He's educated. So he's, he's of a higher learning, a higher standing, so to speak, in the, of the people of that time. And he's probably in the service of whom if he has access to the records of the kings and the chronicles of the kings and the annals of the kings, who is he probably in service to? The king. So this kind of gives you some clues, right? No, we don't know who, who he is by name, but we now know, I think, a significant point about him, wouldn't you say? That he's probably a priest or a scribe. He's highly educated. And as a, scree a, a priest and a scribe, what is his highest calling in, in his life and view of life? God, thing, God things, right? He's all about the God things. He wants to retain the standard of sound doctrine, so to speak. Okay, that would be a New Testament translation. <laughs> okay, so if he wants to retain the standard of sound doctrine and of sound knowledge of who God is, right, and of the things that God is doing, that is one viewpoint that you have to keep in mind as you're considering who the author is, about the authorship of this, that he is probably, well, let's put this on here. He is probably a scribe or a priest. Or even um, another one he says maybe just a, a noble 
that would be another one. I, I, it's less likely one of the a Jewish nobles um, or another kind of a leading, leading man in, in Israel. Um, they didn't say that, but probably from what we know about Daniel, do you think Daniel had the time to do this? <laughs> yes, he did. Okay, so let's just say someone like Daniel. Or maybe one of Daniel's companions besides the four that were there, or maybe it even was one of the four. But we know that Daniel was a very busy man from the record that he wrote and from the visions that God gave him and from the position that he held as high as he went in the kingdom of Babylon in the time that he was there. Um, and the, the interesting thing about being slaves in those days it's a totally different mindset. They take their slaves, they subvert them, and they're under their, their thumb of authority, but they put them in positions of often high places. And they do it for the purpose of being able to manage those people that they brought in by conquest. They need to have people who understand the people they brought in and can function in a way to, to control them, so to speak, right? To appease them on some, t on some situations, but also to mandate things to them. So they actually are pretty wise in the old system of how, what they did with their slaves. Slaves were not, um, you know, locked in a cage and beaten. They were, they were put in, they were cleaned up, well-fed, given education and training and placed in positions of authority. <laughs> pretty amazing, huh? Yes. Um, they never said a prophet because generally the prophets are not the scribes. And this is definitely the work of a scribe, someone who sits and does the, the, the writings and the recordings. In this case, what kind of a book is First and Second Kings? Historical. So it's a historical record. So the prophets were not generally known for being the historical recorders of, of, of events. Um, but, you know... They would, but, they, but I don't know that they would have that position to be able to do what this man did with all that we know of, of these four books. Yes? But it just seems emotional to me that this means that when they, they went to Babylon, all of these written records weren't with them. If somebody read them, consolidated them into their history. Yes, yes. It's very, and, on, and the other thing is they also had access to additional writings that were outside of the Hebrew um, uh, system of record too, because he makes reference. Now I haven't, we haven't come across any yet, but he'll make reference later to the books of the annals and the books of the kings, and that's not talking about the Hebrew nations. It's talking about the kings and kingdoms around the world, the global ones, which each king and kingdom kept record of, because they wanted to know, just like our president today needs to know who the king of every nation is and who their workers are under them and what their policies are. They keep records of all these things. So did the kings in those days. And so when he makes reference, sometimes he'll say, um, and the rest of the information you will find in the, in the books of the kings, right? And so he makes a reference to him, which, by the way, none of those still remain today. They're, they're gone. They were lost forever. But he makes reference to them, and we know about them, and we know what they were, and that's helpful for us for insight about this author, who he was, what, what his agenda was, and where he was in history. Because now we're not at Solomon. We're all the way down here 
at the end of the 70 years of captivity. And when was Solomon written? Where were the people? Where was Israel at the time that Solomon became king? They were still on their land. We're all now all the way, at least halfway, if not further, down the line of the 70 years of captivity that they end up in. Now, does that help you at all filter some of the information that's being recorded? The question needs to be, why was this author recording what he has recorded about King Solomon that we've looked at so far? Why does he tell us what happened with David, what happened with Adonijah, what happened with some of these uh, uh, other people like the commanders and, and the, pr the priests and so forth that were these, these internal difficulties and internal relationships were going on. Why does he record those for us? Okay, but in part, it is just history. But do you think history is the major thing? Here's what's very interesting that, that they make mention of in this, this uh, commentary I read. He had access to all these annals and all these records, and there was multitudes of them. And do you, can you imagine how many things he did not record in First and Second Kings that happened, but he just didn't record them? What does that tell you about what he did record? It was important, and it was selected. It was, it was, it was, it was laser-focused attention on something that he wanted to make a point about. So he has an agenda, this author does, we don't, and at this point, we're still trying to discern what's his agenda, and so that's why I'm trying to help us along in this right now. As we d discuss this, I think it's as important as going through what we looked at this week is understanding contextually who is this author, why did he write, what was his agenda, where was he in history so that you can also get the fuller picture, because do you think it makes a difference knowing that they're, at the time that this was written, they were already in their Babylonian captivity? When he starts to tell you about what happened with Solomon, particularly opening up in chapter 3, or if you go back into First or Second Samuel, what happened with David when he committed his sin with Bathsheba? And Nathan has to come to him and confront him. Yes? Actions have consequences. And with David, which is very interesting, because David is set up on a pedestal with Israel as the prototype of the most excellent king. And yet, what do we know about David and his life? He was not perfect. He was a sinner, which is very interesting, because when you look at this, now the next question is, what's God's agenda? Why did God allow them to have a nation with a king over it? We already talked earlier about the fact that God never wanted them to have a king. He wanted to be their king, but they rejected him as king. And so he says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. When you get a king, these are the things this king is going to do. I'm just telling you up front, right? Now they are at, in the, in the, at the point of first and second uh, kings, particularly in first kings where we are, um, we are now with with. Solomon, and we've seen already some real problems that are going on. And although we look at Solomon, you know, if you had to describe Solomon to somebody, you know, just using one or two words, what would be some of your, his things that you think of first and foremost concerning Solomon? He's wise, okay? And rich, <laughs> right? And he had many concubines. Now, what is the contrast with that? 
was he supposed to amass for himself many wives? Or horses, or riches, or anything else. So already, with David we saw flaws, and now we're in Solomon, and what are we seeing? Human flaws, human, human flaws. And so here we have a kingdom established by God's permissive will, but not his perfect divine will. His permissive will. And in his permissive will, he is allowing Israel to make some big mistakes. And hopefully do what? Learn from them. So there we are. We've got a little more context set at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. I do think, I think you may have hit on something almost, which is in chapter 4 in particular, one of the things that Solomon keeps bringing up is this term loving kindness, correct? And when he speaks about the loving kindness of God, who does he actually address that loving kindness towards? Who is the loving kindness for and to? David. Isn't that interesting? And so in that, it reminds you about what, Kathleen? The covenant that God made with David. Prior to that was the covenant made through Moses. Prior to that was a covenant made through Abraham. But the covenant with David is closer linked to the Abrahamic covenant than it is to the Mosaic covenant. Because in the Davidic covenant, what was the promise to David? He would have someone on the throne how long? forever is that even possible ah it is if you're speaking of a heavenly divine king and kingdom right one through the seed that was promised first to abraham through that bloodline would be a seed that would come and and of that bloodline of seed is david and and on david's bloodline through the through the generations forever and ever there would be a come a king who would be king forever so Um, And yet they don't get the fullness of the message in it yet, obviously, because Solomon and they are still looking in the temporal and the now, which is what we tend to do, right? All right, so let me just say a couple more things here. Okay, the data and its writing then, basically, it is approximately at least 37th year of of the exile in Babylon, probably a little bit longer than that because it goes to the end of Jehoiakim's life in the fact that he was was in the presence of the Babylonian king all the days of his life. Um, It could have been as late as 561 BC or 538 BC based on other records. Authorship unnamed, but probably a high-ranking civil servant of some kind. Probably, I would say, a scribe or a priest is my best guess on this. Yes. Oh, I don't have answers. I have no answers on Jehoiakim. Go ahead. Yes, yes. And um, we know Jehoiakim is not David. Right. But he has been in prison for all these years. Mm -hmm. Is there any 
I don't see. We aren't there yet, and so we haven't studied any of that yet. And I don't. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, it's very intriguing to want to know that, though, isn't it? It's like okay, now our mind has just expanded our context. We've gone from being in the place of where Solomon is to a bigger picture. We're all the way now, midway or beyond, in the Babylonian captivity as far as the author is concerned. So now, because what we want to do when we, are, when we are trying to interrogate and investigate any scripture is we want to know what is the author's purpose for writing. Because his purpose helps us focus on what is said. If we can come to, at some point, grab a better hold of why did this author write these four annals, the records of the kings, or the reigns of the kings or kingdoms, why did he write those? What was his agenda, right? We want to get to that place where we can try to discern that by what we're observing. Yes, Carrie. Yes. Right. Okay. So that could be a possibility. We haven't quite been in it long enough to get where you're coming from, Carrie. But but I'm going to say yes. That that's correct. That that we what we do know is what Romans 15:4 uh, says. These these things that have been written earlier have been written for what? For your encouragement and instruction that you might learn from the things that, that have already happened, basically, that you'll learn from people's mistakes, correct? So at least on one level at this point, and you, you're not totally there, but you might want to make yourself a little note just where you are in historical recording of this. What might the author's purpose be in this? Unnamed. Uh, he has access to a lot more information, but he's very stealth and very pinpointed on the things that he does record. He leaves a lot of stuff out. There's also a repeated phrase in here um, on each of these kings. Does anybody know, just because of previous work, what does this, this author do each time a king's reign ends? What does he, what does he do? He summarizes it, and he gives a declaration about what concerning that king whether he did good in the sight of the Lord or whether he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you see a list that someone did evil and someone did good, now what does that kind of tell you in general? Who walked with God and who didn't really walk with God, right? So, so keep that in mind as we keep moving along uh, with this particular record because I think there are insights in here for him to sh that God will show us also that are so practical to our everyday relationship, personal relationships with God. Um, he had, so he had access to books kept in the Babylonian court and he makes reference to other writings he had access to to gather official dates and facts. Um, the author's purpose... He, certainly he is writing to a, to a national audience, as, as you said earlier. And they are presently in captivity in Babylon when he does this. Um, the close of each king's life, he gives a declaration of what a king did or did not do regarding the cultic worship of his people. And we know that once they went into their Babylonian captivity, because we studied the book of Ezekiel, what, what do we know about the reason that they ended up in that captivity? On the whole, what happened with this nation? 
they fell into idolatry and false worship of God, right? Rather than worshiping God in the way that he determined by according to the articles and the statutes given through Moses, they began to worship God any way they wanted. Kind of like what happened in the days of Noah when men began to marry anyone they wanted. It was an act of defiance against God's being the authority in that. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Not really, because they really did a good job of retaining all that. We know that because in um, Ezra and Nehemiah and all those other books, when they go back to rebuild, they actually have they actually have records of peoples and what houses that they what family lines that they belong to. And if they couldn't prove the record, then they couldn't do certain things like they couldn't be priests and work in the temple. Do you guys remember when we did Ezra? That's been a while ago, quite a few years ago. But but they couldn't even go and work in that capacity unless they could prove by records that they belonged to that family line so that they were approved by God to be there, which is interesting. So, yeah, they, they, it seems like in our humanness that they would have lost it, but they did not. They did not. They, and it's the other point is right here. Here we are in the 37th year of the reign. He's keeping a record. And, he's, and so one of the other points is, what is he doing for his, the people that he's writing? Who is he writing these records for? Written to Israel, okay? Authorship, it's written for Israel, for Israel's learning and remembrance. Yes, but I think that's secondary. I think he actually had a much more pinpoint agenda. I think he wanted them to learn and remember, or remember and learn, in whichever order you like that. Um, records, um, he records events that explain the resulting state of Israel's Babylonian captivity. Because the end result is, I'm showing you these records of what happened historically, because where are we now? <laughs> So what we need to do is figure out what did we do wrong that made us end up in captivity, right? So that's one of the points you can absolutely draw right now without any real uh, amazing insights that we're going to hopefully find later on. But it, it's basically to understand why they are in captivity. Okay, and th I think that's very helpful also because then as you go through now in 1 Kings today, 1 Kings 3 and 4, when you start to keep some of these points in your mind, all of a sudden you look at the points a little bit differently. You go, oh, wow, that's interesting. He's telling them that right now. Why? Because he wants them to understand why they're in captivity. Right? Okay, so why did God allow Israel to have a king and what was God's purpose? His permissive will had a goal. This is what we must look for and discover as we travel the pages of this record. Um, now, one more thing I'm going to tell you before we move into our homework, our actual homework. There's a structure of segment divisions for how you can lay out this, these, these two books, First and Second Kings, which are actually one book. Okay, Actually, it's part of one book. It's half of one book. The other is First and Second Samuel. But specifically concerning first and second kings they are structured in three 
three ways you can break them down, and I do not know what the chapters are yet because I haven't looked at it in this way, but I just took him for his word. He says the first, the first piece of the segment is united Israel under Solomon's reign. Well, we know we're starting with Solomon, so that makes sense. And, it's, and, how, and at this point, how is uh, the kingdom of Israel viewed? Although there has been a chasm because of David and the turmoil that went on with Absalom, the, the northern and the southern tribes kind of pitted. It was like a battle of the north and south, just like we had in America a little bit. They had a, an internal war kind of going on there, but they hadn't actually totally split. They're still somewhat united, and under, under Solomon, it is a united kingdom, okay? All Israel still united under Solomon. That's the first segment. The next segment will show when these kingdoms actually split, and we get a north and a south, and that's going to be later when we hit some of these other kings. And then the third uh, segment is going to show Judah remaining, because what has happened to the northern tribes? They've gone into Assyrian captivity. So that's just a basic, one of the very simplistic segment divisions that you can kind of be watching for is how this book might be broken down. And those segment divisions, I think, are really helpful to kind of just show you the flow of how things are going and the progression of things. But what's most interesting of all to me is the selectiveness that this man, this author has for what he records. And so for me and you, what that means then is as we look at each of these things, rather than just looking, oh, he did this and he did this and he did this, the questions that can kind of come now to your mind are very interesting. So what is the point in him bringing that point out? Correct? All right. So let's get started on looking at how, what we looked at this week for homework. Did I hear, have a question? No. Okay, sorry. All right, one piece down, 15 to go. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's start with First uh, Kings 3. We're going to look at your observation worksheets first. So go flip back to Chapter 3 on your observation worksheets. If you'll open those up, pull out your at-a-glance chart. And we are going to go through again and look at our, I think we're going to pretty much do this often, if not almost every week. But we want to do our paragraphs so that we can see the flow of thought. And one of the great things about doing that in a historical record is then we can kind of have an opportunity to expound and talk on each of the different principles of the, of, of the, the unfolding message. Okay, otherwise we might miss some really good things. All right, so we're going to start with looking at the, at chapter 3 on the whole. What did you see happening on the whole with this chapter? How, how did you title chapter 3? What was the major message? Glenn? Solomon yes, that Solomon was granted wisdom. Okay. All right, good title. Very nice. And anything along those lines is good. And you could have, you can change it in a variety of ways, but so long as you understand that in this chapter, the major emphasis is, uh, is the storyline or the, the, re the recorded event that Solomon was granted wisdom. Okay? Do not confuse wisdom with any other thing. It's wisdom. Okay, now, now let's look at verses 1 to 4 first. That's our first paragraph. 
what is going on in the opening of this book? Now, this, or of this chapter, rather, this to me is going to take us right back to what we just talked about is why did this author record this information up front before he gave us the next piece of information? So I want to I say first and foremost, tell me what your title was for your first segment, your first paragraph in verses 1 to 4. What did you see happening in 1 to 4? Oh, yeah. Solomon was sacrificing in high places. Very interesting. Now, that, that would be, a, a, to me, a, a good start for a title in that. What else was he doing? He had a marriage alliance with, the, with Pharaoh, king of who? Egypt. Does anybody have any red flags popping up because of that? Uh-huh, me too. Okay, so there's two things that are going on. There's another thing mentioned that I think is real profound in verse 3, and what does it say there? He loved the Lord. Now, is there any um, descriptive word or caveat that's given to that love? Except, and if you did not mark that as a key word, I want you to do it right now. Circle that word and color it a bright, bright color. Because to me, this is the pivotal wording in this particular whole chapter that I think brings out something that this author wants you to understand. Because he talks about how Solomon loves the Lord except, right? And would you say that the exception that's mentioned here, it's in relationship to what subject? slaughtering, giving sacrifices before the Lord, worshiping before the Lord. And if you have any exceptions um, given about who you are as a king, would this be one that you would say, we'll let it slide? I don't think so. <laughs> to me, that's pivotal and very important. And then he follows it, however, in the next chapter, which is 5 to 9, where he shows that the Lord appears to Solomon, and Solomon... Solomon, in all his brilliance, what does he do? What does he request of God? A discerning heart. He requests of God wisdom and discerning heart to lead God's people. Now, you did word studies on a couple of those things. What did you learn about those words, uh, discerning and understanding? If you can find them in, your, in all your notes. That was on day two's homework, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I can tell you right here and now, knowing my husband, and if he's any demonstration of most men, to listen with that much intention and deliberateness would actually be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because think about this. How many people did Solomon had to listen to sometimes on a daily basis and their problems? And he says, give me understanding, another a power to hear with attention or interest to listen. That really requires a strength and a focus and a discipline, right? And also, it, I think it, it implies that behind the listening there is a seriousness of responsibility, right? I think that's really telling. Okay, so that kind of understanding is to have the power even, the strength to hear, right? All right, 
and then and then it goes on and talks about perception as well perception of hearing with the ears to process that information having an exceptional ability to do that so that's the word understanding then you looked at the word discern okay understand yes Okay, yes, yeah, yes, okay, to, it, okay, to separate, to discern, to understand, what else? Oh, I love that, to be cunning, you know, that is really an important quality, and there is a gifting, a spiritual gifting of wisdom, and ins of that kind of, dis the word, we call it the word discernment, actually, and just the, the spiritual gifting of discernment is different from the kind of discernment that we all are called to use and exercise, kind of like hospitality. We're all to exercise hospitality, but there's no spiritual gift of hospitality. But there is a, a command that we all exercise it. But with discernment, we all are to have discernment, but there's also the spiritual gifting of discernment. We're all supposed to teach but there's a spiritual gift of teaching. So there's some distinction here. So in this discernment, this is a discernment which is a gifting that he is going to give him. It's, he is giving to, uh, to um, Solomon a spiritual gift. Did you ever consider that? This is the moment when God, God gives to Solomon by his mercy, by his grace, a spiritual gifting of wisdom. And within wisdom, you see these qualities then of discerning and of understanding. Isn't that cool? That, that basically, discerning and understanding explains wisdom. It defines wisdom for you. All right. So that was very that was very insightful. So we have we have Solomon's love starting out at the beginning. So we're going to put up here Solomon's love. That's our first paragraph, one to four. And I'm going to leave that open because I want to give you some more information on that. And then we go to five to nine. And in five to nine, we see um, what has happened in five to nine. Tell me your title there. Okay, he has a dream. And what's the most important part? Yes, he has a dream. But somebody appears. That's like real important. <laughs> okay. The Lord appears to Solomon. Don't you think that's the most important part of this? And it's the Lord that appears to him? Especially when we start taking in the information for the, from the first paragraph. And then, and then he appears to him um, in a dream. And then Solomon requests of him. Requests wisdom, discerning and understanding. I thought it was important in one to four. Also, when Solomon prophesied, and God came both times to Solomon after he had sacrificed. And after he sacrificed to God, where? In the, in the correct place. Right. 
When he went to Gibeon to the tabernacle, right, then he appears to God. But did God appear to him on the high places of the, of the hills where the people were all going? No. Okay, so back to, back to authorship and, and author's purpose in this and what his, why he picks out the specific pinpoints on this. We do want to back it up a little bit and look here at what's going on with, with him. He says he, he lo- Solomon loved the Lord. But then there's the word accept, right? I should have put the Lord in there. <laughs> Loved the Lord. Sorry. Loved the Lord, except he also worshiped in these high places. So I kind of titled mine in that particular section. Solomon's love with exceptions because it's a it's a love that comes with it compromises and disobedience so when you think about the big picture of this storyline then why would this author want you to know this information about Solomon's sin up front before he goes into telling you about how God gave him wisdom. Okay. Very good. Okay, for one thing, he, what, what might, might be part of his agenda here then is for you to understand that the sins that Solomon carried, just as his father had sins before him, Solomon is also a sinner. And Solomon's choices have consequences. Now, where did we say they are in history at this point? In their captivity. So... What do you think that points out to the people who are in the days midway through the captivity? Why they're there. Why they're there. Isn't that pretty funny? I mean, not really funny, but I mean, not funny, haha, but funny as in amazing. Isn't that insightful? Doesn't that help you better understand? Because otherwise, what you're looking at is almost a schizophrenic account of a guy who's a good guy, bad guy. And you don't know why this author is telling you this information. Why does he point out that Solomon had committed sin? But at the same time, then follows it with God gave him this great blessing of wisdom to lead God's people. So now you have to go back then in, con- in the context of the bigger picture and say, okay, God created this nation. He did it in a supernatural way, and he did it for a divine purpose. So knowing David's history of being a sinner and now Solomon's history of some of the sins, and we're just beginning to look at them, and we're going to begin to see more and more what the consequences might be on those, but why would that be an important thing for us to take note of? There you go. Any human king is going to be flawed. And with the history that we know about Israel, where Israel initially was told, basically, I want to be your king by God, and yet they insisted on having a king like the rest of the world. So now God is not God. Is this not potentially also an opportunity for God to say, see, human kings are going to have failure with them, and you're going to have struggles with them. There's going to be compromise in in 
the kingdom that God really wants and designed for you. Mm-hmm. And there's this wonderful little phrase in there. God gave them the desires of their heart and set wings for their soul. Wow. Yeah. They, they, they sold out for a, a bowl of porridge. Kind of sounds like Jacob and Esau, too, right? With Esau selling his birthright. Uh huh. Okay, okay, good, good question. Okay, when you looked at the reading on this, he says, um, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for, okay, you always want to circle your words for, because that's a term of conclusion, right? That was the great high place. So he, they, the text is written in such a way as it distinguishes it from the other kinds of high places, correct? And it's called a great high place. So when you look up the word great, did anybody do that, by a word study on that? I would recommend you do it. I did do it. Let me tell you what I discovered. But I, would, I recommend that you do it for clarification on this particular verse. On the word great in verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for. That was the great high place. And that's a contrast to the other high places. There's a high place, and the other high places mentioned in here are the places where the, the people were still sacrificing, right? And what did God tell Israel when they went into the land? What were they to not do? Sacrifice on all those hills and everywhere and everywhere they do. And when Ezekiel's written, he talks about destroying those high places. That's what God would do to them because of because of their idolatry of of lifting their skirts on every high mountain basically right and so he, he equates it to um uh, adultery even so here though it's called the great high place which distinguishes it and it shows it that it's a contrast so there are the high places the people went on and and who went there to sacrifice besides the people solomon oops then there's the great high place. Now, the word great, by definition, it means, um, it means great. It also means distinguished. It means uh, important. And it means magnified. So by that, just by the word study alone, how does that set it apart in a, in a different manner from the other kinds of great places? Does it, does it indicate to you that there's something different about it, that it's distinguished, as the word says? It's a distinguished place. Okay, why is it distinguished? Well, so what we have to do is say, well, let's go and look at the place of Gibeon. What is there? The tabernacle. Do you remember the tent of meeting that travels with the people? And where did they park it? Wherever the Shekinah glory stopped it, correct? So in that, in that place, it was God's determined place for them to do what? Worship him. Now, the, the twist in the story, which I still don't understand, and I don't know if, if anybody here has insight, I'd love to hear it, but that at, at a certain point, David had removed the, the um, Ark of the Covenant and taken it out of the tabernacle and, and taken it where? To Jerusalem. And, they, and he had built something special for it, right? A tent of its own. So it had its own holy tent, its own holy place, in Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant in it, and it was separated from the other. And so this, to me, is a little 
strange, and I don't quite understand this. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, my question to you is, why did God allow his Ark of the Covenant to be stolen? Mm-hmm. What else had happened about that tent? What had happened concerning the, the presence of God at the, ta- the tabernacle? He left it very much like what, what we see in Ezekiel when he left the temple. So God had left his, ta- his, tab- his Ark of the Covenant. He was no longer hovering over the holy mercy seat, right? He had left that and allowed then those Philistines to come in and steal it. So then David later reclaims it and brings it to Jerusalem, puts it in its own tent to protect it. It was now in the inner city, the most protected place in all of Israel, where the guards are, where, I mean, it's, he did it for, for the purpose of protection. I think you're correct on that. Okay, but at this point, the two places are separated. However, nonetheless, God, where was the last place the Shekinah glory showed them that the tent should be? Was at Gibeon. So that is the place of God's choosing, correct? It's a good place. And from the great high place. Right. No. So what, what does that tell you about? So what does that tell you about Solomon? He was willing to worship on the high places, and he was willing to worship at the great high place, the one that God set apart and determined was the correct place. So he's, he's doing what? He's doing what a lot of people who call themselves Christians do. He's got one foot in the world and one foot in the things of God. He is walking a fence. He, uh, you know, and, and if you look at this politically, what might be his agenda in this? Who is it that's also worshiping on the high places? The people. So he's now king of the people. So what might part of his agenda be? To please the people, right? To join in with them and to gain favor and whatever in their sight in some way. Now, with one little, with one little point, though, that they said, it was because also that the, um, I don't know if it was in this one or if it was in the Chronicles record. No, it's this one. But he had finished building his own house, the house of the Lord and the wall around the Jerusalem. They were sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now, this is very interesting to me. It sounds like there that he is saying, well, because of that, it was okay for them to be on the high places. My question to you is, what do you know is the recorded record by God himself about them worshiping on the high places? Absolutely not. So even though they didn't yet have their temple and a place to go of that eventually they would have, it's really interesting because you can tell that this is written after the fact, right? Because before they had their temple built, the people wouldn't even, really didn't have anything to, to um, excuse for them going on the high places. They knew the appropriate place to go to worship God. And it was going to be at Gibeon, at the tent of the of tabernacle. 
And at this point, also, it seems to be an acceptable thing to also go before the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant is because of the circumstance. The fact that God allowed David to reclaim it is also showing that God is with them in that and that when he brought it back and put it in its own place of protection there in Jerusalem that God seemed to have put a stamp of sanction of approval on it so at this point in history we see two places which are acceptable to worship the Lord and bring the sacrifices Gibeon where the tent of the tabernacle is and at Jerusalem where the altar or the um, ark, of, ark of the covenant is are we on board Okay, so we have, De we have Solomon being revealed to us then as a guy who's walking the fence. He's trying to please the people, and he's trying to live like the people and live like the world, but he's also trying to please God at the same time. When he goes to the high places where the people are worshiping, does God appear to him? No. Where does God appear to him? At the appointed place that God had chosen. Very interesting, is it not? So that when Solomon did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, then what did God do? He blessed him. Wow, does that sound familiar, right? Okay, so we see then that there was forbidden worship. Solomon joins the people in worshiping on those high places. We also see in these, this opening section this point about forbidden marriage. We see him marry the queen um, or the, um, the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt, right? Now, that one is a little more lengthy to look at, but if you go to Deuteronomy 7, again, where God makes a forbidding point about who they can and cannot marry when they enter onto the land, which we talked about earlier in Deuteronomy 7, he says, when you enter on the land, do not marry these people. Why? Because they'll draw your heart away from serving me because of their idolatry. So by him marrying uh, a daughter of Egypt, what is he yoking himself with? idolatry. So the principle has not changed, even though the name of Egypt is not in that list of those he's going to chase off the land, only because they're not on the land. If they had been on the land, he would have chased them out too, right? If Egypt had been a nation that was on that land of Israel, would God have chased them out for Israel to secure their land? Would they have been in the list? Yes. Why? Because of idolatry. That's the factor here. That's the, the glue that holds all this together. The other thing is we looked in Deuteronomy at a passage that talked about um, what the king would do in amassing chariots and horses and, and all these things, right? And he also said to them, he says, and do not secure for yourself horses, nor go down to Egypt to secure them. Why? Because they're not to ever return where? They're not ever to return to Egypt symbolically in scripture, what is Egypt? The picture for us. It's the world and it's sin, it's corruption, right? And God brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery to serve the living God, correct? So when Solomon, who is God's people, he brought out of that, now turns around and returns there, maybe not physically, but at least in his mind, and then yokes himself to them in a covenant of marriage, what's the problem with that? It's, it's back to what does light have to do with darkness? I want to look at two verses. We aren't going to get very far in this today, you guys. Ugh, this is so sad. But this is good stuff. We're, we're learning, and that's important. Um, I want you guys to look at... Um, 
1 Corinthians 6.15 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. Because I want us to bring it into present day. Because here it is. This is a truth quality for you and I in our everyday lives. Who do we today marry and not marry? Is the, has God changed his mind on this principle of, of who you are to join in covenant with? You, know, you can also take this into not just marriage covenant, but also into business covenants, any other kind of covenant that yokes you together with someone in a, in a uh, way of intimacy, sort of. Okay, so for, someone read 1 Corinthians 6, 15. And you might need to read the few verses around it, because I'm not sure. I didn't get the whole thing on my sheet. I didn't have room for it. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, Glenn, go ahead. There you go. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? That makes it to me the most clearest statement of it all. And so what he's saying is don't be yoked with an unbeliever because what does a believer have to do with an unbeliever? What does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with, with other little gods that are no gods at all? Okay, now let's go to 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 14 to 18. Is that what you just read? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Then do 1 Corinthians 6.15. And that's the one I was saying you need to kind of go around it. Because I'm not sure if I got the whole thing or not. But somebody got it? Okay, good. Wow. Okay, so if you think about that, does that not make you think about Ezekiel, where God's made the point that what the the sin of Israel was is that they had committed adultery by uniting themselves with these pagan worships, by going on every hill and place, which is what we're looking at here, and worshiping at the high places. So God says, don't do that, because this is important. So right away in 1 Kings 3, what we see is Solomon, it says, and Solomon loved the Lord. Would you define this as love, the kind of love that God wants us to have? When God speaks of love, how does he define it? Obedience. Obedience. Okay, so with that in the back of your mind, then you have to understand that the kind of love that Solomon is portraying to us at this point anyway is a love that is divided. And this, I think, is where this title that that Precept came up with, a divided heart, a divided nation. Because at the end of, of Solomon's life, what happens to his nation? It splits. There's a division that comes. And again, it's kind of like Kathleen said, that there are consequences for sin. And your consequences may not just be in your personal life. David had a lot of consequences as well. And I think we saw them through his sons most profoundly. 
But, uh, God continued to bless him, however, right? So there got Dave, and Dave, the distinction with David that I see at this point, and it's not from our study, it's just from previous knowledge, is that David had a repentant heart before the Lord. And when he was confronted and challenged on the, his sin and on the things that, that did not please God, he, he did repent, he did turn, and there was a deep godly kind of sorrow from him. So we're going to look forward now. Let's move forward. and We've got 15 minutes. I'm going to stop writing and just talk. And see if we can get through these paragraph titles, okay? So this, at least now what I've, I think I've done for us by just doing what we've done so far this morning, we've set our context. We're beginning to view this a little more carefully from the author's perspective of why he wrote. We're seeing a little more precision as to why did he record what he recorded and in the order that he did. In this case, he starts out by recording Solomon. And we saw in chapter 1, he was... He was um, anointed as king. Chapter 2, he was established firmly as king. And now in chapter 3, we see that God gives him wisdom. But that's not. But before he t we get to see the storyline about the wisdom being given to him, we get, we, are ex we get to see his sin exposed. So we, we see a vulnerable, weak king on one hand. But on the other hand, we see a powerful, wise, strong king. What a conflict that kind of is for us, right? But that just tells you what? He's a human being, right? All right. So we see Solomon's love with exceptions, and that's all presented in the first paragraph. The second paragraph, the Lord appears to Solomon. And th there's a key word in that section there of loving kindness. So what is that making reference back to then? A covenant with David. So we talked about that a little bit earlier. So let's move on. He's going to give him understanding heart to judge God's people, to discern between good and evil. Does that remind you of anything we just studied? Hebrews 5, verse 14. Just write it down on pencil it in. You can go back and look at it. But when we, we studied Hebrews, that was exactly what the author of that book was doing, is rebuking uh, that the people in that book. In, in that writing, in that pastoral address, he was rebuking them for not having just uh, trained themselves by the, by the constant use of the word of righteousness so that they could discern between good and evil, right? So, and here we see it. He says, I need that kind of wisdom to be able to discern between good and evil. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord then, God said, and then what does God do? He grants him wisdom. So wh what are you going to title the next paragraph? Verses 10 to 15, God grants Solomon wisdom. It's pretty simple. And in there, are there any points that you see um, that now that you are looking this through a little different prism, is there anything in there that you see that you, you didn't maybe notice before? Yeah, so it's a completed act in the, in, yeah. So what does that tell you about God and how God views the state of history at this point? It's a done thing. God sees everything, the end from the beginning. He has this sovereign, divine understanding of the things that are about to happen and transpire. Then you just said 
He allowed him to have those things he did. And so here's, again, going to be a dilemma for us. Just like um, Solomon went on the hills and, and worshipped on every hill, and the scripture says, well, but they didn't have a temple yet. Does that excuse him going to the high places to worship? No. So when God says, I'm going to grant, go ahead. Okay, good for you. Good. I, I was hidden there, Glenn, but that is excellent. That's exactly right. The wording on that is what, what Solomon amassed to himself. Now, it is, I, granted, I understand the dilemma in your, in your mind, my mind as well, that, well, it seems like if God on the one hand said, but I'm going to give you riches so that when he was getting riches, that he didn't, he didn't seem to understand he wasn't supposed to do that. And yet, did he know that he wasn't supposed to be doing that, that he was supposed to be using that, those, the, first of all, he started by making an alliance in order to uh, um, amass chariots and horses from a country that he was not supposed to return to. So he began it with a, with a big sin right off the bat of breaking God, a commandment that God had given. And then through that avenue that he made for himself, God did not do that. Solomon did that. That's where a lot of his wealth came from. So if you do your historical uh, study on that, God would have provided all those things that he said he was going to give for him. But instead, Solomon uh, broke God's commandments, made alliances he wasn't supposed to, returned to Egypt, which he wasn't supposed to, and, and he himself amassed power and riches. Now, God, did God allow it? Yes. And God had even said, I will. But he didn't wait on God. He went for it himself. Yes. Yes. Right. And I do. And I think there's a there is a clear distinction in our personal lives as well. Do you not? Uh, between what we get for ourselves and what we see God gives to us. How often do we go after things that we think we want and we work really hard to get them and maybe we get them? And then after we get them, we, we start seeing consequences and other fallouts that we didn't, you know, necessarily think through on. Um, yes. And yet when God is the one that orchestrates it and he's the one that gives it, would God have violated his own laws in order to give these things to Solomon? No. So that's kind of your answer. Everything goes back to plumb lines. Don't violate your known doctrine. And, and remember the context. God had promised he would give him wealth and all these things. He said he would. But instead, Solomon went after them himself. And he went after them in a way through an avenue of violating the commandments that God had given to him. Now, did God allow him to go ahead and do that? Yes. What does that sh again show us? Free will. God allows a lot of things, but there's going to be a price to pay. There is going to be a price. Okay. Um, okay, 5 to 9. We did now, let's do, we did 10 to 15. Now let's do 11 or 16 to 28. Okay, so there's two harlots. And in the end, is there a conclusion statement in here that kind of 
pulls this all together about this, the storyline of the harlots. Because we know that the storyline of the harlots is not there for the purpose of just telling us about these two harlots and what happened, right? We don't really care. It's kind of like when uh, King David was telling him what to do with Joab and uh, Abinadad and so forth. It wasn't really about that. He was saying, in principle, when you encounter these kinds of circumstances, this is how you need to handle it as a king. Well, we have another picture here about these, this har these two harlots and this, this, uh, these children, right? And the death of one and how it's going to be handled. In the bigger picture, what is the point that's being shown to us here? Ah, so the point was he had asked God for wisdom. God said he gave him wisdom. And then what we have is a demonstration of that, right? That God shows, he shows, he says, Israel sees the wisdom of God is in Solomon. That's how it concludes in verse 28. So all that writing, 16 to 28, is simply to be a demonstration, one story of how it's demonstrated in the life of Solomon. And there were many, many, many he could have picked from. Yes. Yeah, they do. And that God is the one who's with him as well. That since God is the one who designated him to be the king, and now God has given him the wisdom to rule over them, now it, it definitely holds the, the people's feet to the fire a little bit. However, it really wasn't real effective because what we know later happens is not so good. Okay, um, now in chapter 4, the major theme there, in the conclusion of it, what do we see going on? Okay, Solomon is wiser than all men. So you think that that's all about the wisdom, his wisdom in chapter 4? What does it really seem to be? What, tell me what you see in verses 1 to 6, the first paragraph. It talks about his officials. Verse 2, these were his officials, and it lists them, right? What about in 7 to 19? These are his deputies, Solomon's deputies, and it, and it shows how administratively what had happened to Israel. It wasn't no longer broken down just by the 12 tribes of Israel, but now how is it broken down? It's by region for administrative purposes. That's what she was wanting you to see in that. I know that she had you go look at maps, and you're looking around. I bet you were scratching your head going, well, why isn't just the 12 tribes listed, right? Because in the end, what happened with Judah? Was Judah a part of those 12 administrative uh, areas? No. Did you notice Judah was not listed among those who brought uh, uh, tribute to the king, right? Let's go back. Let's go to the next one in um, uh, 20, 20 to 28. Who brought what in those verses? Yeah, all Israel. Those districts that he just mentioned, those 12 districts, brought tribute to and served Solomon. But who was, who was omitted from the list? Judah. Very interesting. Go back to thinking about what was said with um, what would happen to the people when they got a king over them. He would take and take and take. I'm going to take your daughters. They're going to serve me. I'm going to get your horses. I'm going to get a tenth of your grains and of your seeds. And I'm going to. So, what do you see demonstrated in 20 to, in 20 to 28? Actually, in one through 28 at this point, 
He's taking, taking, taking. He's doing exactly what God said he would do. He took certain men to be his officials. He took certain people to be uh, administrators. And then in 20 to 28, he, he gathered a tribute or a taxation, is what you're seeing here, a taxation from the people, everyone except Judah. And interesting to me on that point is, how do you think that made the, the other 12 districts feel concerning Judah? <laughs> Not real good. Yeah. Well, you could look at it from that perspective, or you could also consider the heavy burden that was on you for the one month, which, because it was, look at the details of how much stuff they were, they were bringing in. And I, what I think is really interesting, too, is the wisdom in how this was broken down so that they had the supplies in a consistent manner throughout the, all the 12 months, which is why they broke it into 12 districts, okay? So that each of the months were covered. And was this only to see in his yes. people that got all the stuff? Yes. It wasn't for the entire city? No. But Judah was exempt. Why? He was from the tribe of Judah. So his own tribe was exempt. Why? Beyond that, I can't, I can't guess. But I, I'm just, that's my observation. <laughs> okay, and then the last chapter, or the last paragraph, 29 to 34. Yes, now this is, Susan, where we see his profound wisdom is known worldwide. Now, why does it conclude with that? Well, because of how orderly and how strategic and how well taken care of the people are and, and how... Uh, how, how well his cabinet of, of people who are serving him, every person very wisely chosen. Did you notice that, what do they call that, neptitism that was going on in there? A couple of son-in-laws and, and a best friend. I thought, I thought about some people in my life. I thought, mm, you guys could be part of my cabinet, you know. <laughs> Just hang out with me. Come on. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, was, yes, I know, isn't that cool? Very, very cool, exactly. All right, so I am profoundly sorry that we could not go into deeper detail, but I do think that we laid some really good foundation insights today that are going to be beneficial as we move forward. So uh, we, you have two weeks to go back now. If you want to, you can go back and look at some of the things that we did this week and see if you can clarify in your mind maybe even better Based on the knowledge of this author and the date of the writing and what else had already transpired, how that might help you have better insights as to what you're looking at. Um, but also, I will send out my notes as always, so you'll have those. We did not get a chance to talk about the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, but I, I do think those were pretty, pretty obvious when you got into those. So, lovely. You guys have a great week off next week. Enjoy it. Take the time to get your homework done early.